Hi, I'm Mariah Larkin. And I'm Emily Alchel. And this is episode one of Mental. Where we're rethinking crazy. Mariah and I met about a year ago. Yeah. We weren't really friends at first, were we? No, but to be fair, that's because our first interaction went something like... Hi, I'm Emily, and I'm going to manhandle you right now. (laughs) Uh, In the context of a play, right? we should probably make that clear. But once the play ended and we had a chance to get to know each other a little bit better, we realized we had a lot in common and actually did want to be friends, and that we were also interested in working on something together. And for some reason, we both instantly gravitated towards issues of mental health. Mariah, what was your reason? Well, I, I've i dealt with depression and anxiety for a long time. Um, I was initially diagnosed with major depressive disorder when I was 12, and general anxiety disorder when I was 18. So it's always been a really big part of my life. What was your reason? I've also had my own personal journey with mental health. I had OCD as a kid. And I had a depressive episode right when I moved to New York. And at the time, I really didn't have the vocabulary for it, and I didn't have the support system for it. And throughout my life, I've I found that I've surrounded myself with people who I care very deeply about, who in a variety of ways have dealt with mental health issues. And I think it's really important that we know how to open those conversations so that we can both get help and provide help for each other. Yeah, because I think when we talk about these issues, things can get really heavy and really dark really fast, and I don't necessarily think that they have to. Right, I agree. I think these conversations just need to happen. They just need to be normal. So the first story we have to share with you all comes from Jonathan Draxton. Um, Emily, do you want to tell us a little bit about him? Sure. So Jonathan is an actor and a writer living and working in New York City, and he also just so happens to be a dear friend of mine. Jonathan knows how to make people laugh. I think most people think of him as kind of a clown. Actually, this is how most people know him. I I see him. You think darkness is your ally? I was born in the dark. This is Bane as an old man at his retirement home. Would you like some cookies? Come in, come in, Batman. Nailed it. But this is another side of Jonathan. One that I'm really grateful he felt comfortable enough to share with us. What's your name? Jonathan Draxton. And your age? I'm 26. What do you do? I'm an actor and a writer. Where do you live? I live in New York City. And where are you from originally? I'm originally from Park City, Utah. So I guess you invited me to speak on your podcast about depression, which is an interesting topic for me personally, um, because growing up, I never thought of myself as a depressed person, nor any of my family members. We never really talked about mental health issues. I had gone to therapy when I was growing up in Utah, but I had always associated those sessions with dealing with a large family of 
particularly exceptional people. Like my, my sister is a ballet dancer. One of my brothers is a minor league baseball player. And so it was, you know, living up to expectations. And then I went to college. I went to a very elite liberal arts college again, where everyone was exceptional and people didn't talk about their problems. And I also spent a lot of my time there trying to keep up with these exceptional people. So I didn't have a lot of time to think about Jonathan. I wasn't very inward focused. And then in 2012, I moved to New York City and suddenly I became my own person. I didn't have to look to the outside world to define myself, which brought up a lot of baggage that had been hidden beneath the busyness of my previous life. So when I moved to New York City, suddenly became you're free and your own person. And the question was, who is that person? And who are you occupying your day with inside your own head? And I became more and more aware of the bleaker parts of me. When I was at school, I feel like this manifested in my writing. And I was always, you know, it feels like the stereotypical thing of the artist, like, oh, darkness and like, you know, the shadow. But in New York, it became this palpable coat that I was wearing, this heavy thing on my shoulders that I would walk around with. And then there came this one winter, the next winter in 2013. Um, I had just broken up with a girlfriend, and the acting thing wasn't really panning out. And I remember there was this one day, there, I have a very particular day that I can think of, where I walked out of my bedroom into the living room and there was this shaft of sunlight coming through our, our living room door uh, uh, and window and it illuminated all the dust in the air and on the furniture and sticking to the TV and on the couch and I I lost all sense of life <laughs> um, I had no energy and it felt like the world didn't have any energy. It felt very still, like a, like a mausoleum. And I sort of just turned around and went back to bed uh, because it felt like there was nothing, the world wasn't going to change. Um, and I wasn't going to change. And, you know, what was, what's, what's the point? <laughs> and I suddenly sort of started spiraling. Uh, I slept. A lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, I remember there were a couple of days where I just slept 18 hours. Uh, I would get up for a few hours and then I would nap on the couch and then I would just move to my bed and I would go to sleep again. I ate a lot less and I started, I, I, that sense of the loss of energy started leading me to believe like, you know, what's, what's the point? <laughs> uh, what's the point of going on with any of this? Um, and I started dabbling with the thought of, of, you know, why not just call it a day? Why not just kill myself? Uh, I feel like a waste of space. Uh, yeah. And I didn't really talk to anyone about it. And I'm not entirely sure if my roommate at the time or any of my, any of my close friends knows about this, but the depth of despair 
I felt like I was in. Um, and it frightened me, which I hear now is actually a good sign that I was frightened by these new thoughts. It's something I've never, never, it had never occurred to me, never, um, before I was, how old was I? I was probably 20, I was 24, I was 23, 24. And so I decided to look for a therapist in New York City. I had a very good therapist in Utah who I would often see whenever I came home from college. And she also did therapy just for my family in general. We were very contentious. Uh, and so she understood she had a context for who I was, which is why I think I didn't seek it out right away when I went to New York. But then once this started happening, not only did I want a therapist, I wanted these thoughts and feelings to stop because they went on for so long. You know, people have their, I understand that people have their dark days and like, you know, just general workplace blues sort of thing. But this, it was every day for three or four months. I felt like I was drowning. So not only did I go to the therapist, I also asked him if, you know, is there anything you can give me to make this go away? Um, the thing about the exceptionalism in both my family and at the college I went to was that this felt like an admission of, of, um, of weakness. There's something wrong with me and I'm sorry for it and I want it to go away. Um, and maybe, you know, medication is the quote easy way out of that problem. Um, but the thing was, I, I had been, I exercised and I ate well and, you know, I took care of myself, but it still is like something's up with my brain. So maybe medication will help. Please don't tell anyone, therapist man. <laughs> um, and so he, uh, he prescribed me something and I took it for quite a while. And the problem was that I felt myself changing. Of course, it's going to change me. You know, it's my, it's my, it's my brain chemistry that's being dabbled with. And the best way I can describe it is I felt like a panda bear. <laughs> uh, I was very dull in my thinking. My thoughts didn't come as quickly to me as they usually do. I like to think of myself as a quick-witted person. I like to do improv. I like leaps in thought. And I suddenly lost that. And the world just sort of started fogging up. And the other side effect was that my sex drive dropped dramatically, which was a problem because it made me feel, you know, as a 24-year-old in America and a male, I felt like I was being told, if you don't want to have sex all the time, there's something drastically wrong with you. So it was like, not only are you depressed, <laughs> you also don't want to have sex, so something is really, really wrong with you. Um, and I think the turning point was when the girl I had broken up with came back. Uh, she had been studying abroad and she came back to the States and she still wanted like, you know, to pick things up where we left them. And I had to explain to her that, you know, like I have, I'm on this medication right now for, I have this antidepressant that sort of like messes with my sex drive. So, you know, it's not you, it's me. And her reaction was to ask me, well, are you exercising? Um, are you eating right? Maybe you just need to meditate. Her reaction was the reaction that I had feared going on the meds. Not even the meds, just 
I have I don't think I've ever really told anyone that I struggle with depression because I fear that they will think that's me trying to find an excuse for the way I feel that it's the easy way out of a problem that everyone faces. And so uh, this sort of led to several things. First, I did I decided I should not see this girl anymore. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was I also went off the meds, which is a controversial decision. I think there is a world where I might need to go back on them. Um, it's not now, but if the day were to come, I would not be afraid to do so because, you know, I want, I want to stay alive. I think that's an odd sentiment, but it leads into my next, the next part of my story, which was that when I went off the meds, I got a call from my best friend from childhood and his brother, his brother had just committed suicide, and he asked me to come home for the memorial service. And I, you know, I said, of course. And I had the chance to see what happens after someone chooses to kill themselves. Um, because I think in my, in the world that I was living in when I was contemplating doing that, it was just a matter of release, and like everyone would be better off, and the world would be. You know, the dust would go away, I guess, for everyone else. And it turns out it's quite the opposite. Um, I think the hardest part, the hardest part was seeing um, my mom's reaction. Because we, wa we walked in the lobby and uh, the brother's photo was there. And she just started, she started like heaving with sobs. And she said, you know, she just couldn't, she couldn't do it. Uh, she couldn't go in there. Um, and I had to sort of coax her along. And it was like, you know, she she knew of my friend's brother, but it's not like, you know, it put him to perspective the idea of this is how my mom reacts, just seeing anyone's child decide that life is not worth living. How, how could I possibly, how could I possibly, how could I possibly impose that? on her, her own child. And of course, my friend's reaction and just seeing all these people, I think the hardest thing to keep to, the thing we always have to remember is that there are people in the world who love us and appreciate us and we are bright spots for them. You know, they might, they might be going through darkness and we are their light. And so for us to extinguish it Yeah, I, I came back from I came back from Utah with this entirely new outlook and I wanted to live for other people. You know, I might have shitty days and awful days and days when I feel like I'm a waste of space 
And when that happened from then on, I would always go to someone I knew thought quite the opposite. And I think that's an area where I'm very fortunate in is that I have this amazing network of people who are unique and beautiful and let me know they love me and they laugh with me and they make me feel appreciated. And so it was this question of me stepping outside of myself for a moment and giving myself to them and being their guiding lights. Um, and so that's, that's how, that's, that's how I deal with it now. I, whenever I feel like I'm entering one of these darker periods, I hang out with them. I call them. And of course it's difficult because there are days where I'm just like, Oh, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't, I don't want to interact with any other human being, but I do it for them. And then by doing it for them, it makes me feel better. And if that doesn't work, if I do want to sit inside and do Netflix all day, I do that. Except usually I watch stand-up comedy or something just totally dumb. All right, planet Earth, which, you know, animals are delightful creatures. Snow leopards are amazing. And they, they're so, it reminds me that life is hard and a struggle, but it's also so beautiful. And you just have to wait around a little longer, I think, to see what's up. And I've also confronted the fact that these dark days I have, um, they're a part of who I am. Often I feel like in my work or my social life, I do present as like this clown figure or the person who's always joking or trying to make everyone else around him feel good and laugh. And then when the door is closed, I, I become this other person. But that's, that's, that's okay. And it's a part of me, like, you know, like my eye color or how I'm tall. And, like, I live with it and I accept it as who I am. And I think everyone has their things they wish could change but can't. Um, and you just live with them and integrate them into your being and into your existence. Um, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Emily Altschul. I'm Mariah Lurkin. And this has been Mental. Rethinking crazy. Because you're not crazy. 